This December, come together for the holidays with Mohawk Mountain House, the Hudson Valley's most iconic resort. Enjoy big savings and escape to our Victorian holiday-themed castle. You'll see live music, Victorian carolers, a winter lights display, and more. Plus, try ice skating, winter hiking, along with holiday crafts and campfires. Bring your Victorian-era costumes for extra fun. Book by July 27th and save up to 40% on December stays. Book now at mohonk.com. That's M-O-H-O-N-K.com. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the The kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone to Garden of Doom. We have our friend Jim Wilhelmson back again. You might recall he was on a prior episode. I believe I cleverly named that one The Giant Revelation. So if you haven't heard that show, go back and take a listen to it, though these two are not necessarily directly related. But if you find them interesting today, you'll certainly find that show interesting as well. But today we're going to have a little bit more fun. Not that the other one wasn't fun, but this one is a little bit more frivolous. But maybe not. We're going to find out. We're going to talk about science fiction and some iconic movies, TV shows, things like that, that that we've all heard of. Maybe some that are before some of your time, maybe some of them before some my time. Um, And we're going to talk about how the scripture ties into these and how there's biblical references uh, all throughout. And there's clues in all of these movies and uh, hidden messages or maybe not even hidden. So Jim is a, uh, he's a minister. He's 
uh, founded an evangelical bikers ministry back in 1979. And I did not know this until someone else said it, but it was actually a uh, response to the Hells Angels who were a big, big deal in the 70s and 80s. And maybe they still are a big deal in some way, but uh, back then sort of like road culture was almost like freedom. It was almost like cowboys. They were motorcycles and trucks. And that was the TV shows and the movies, Smokey and the Bandit, Convoy, BJ and the Bear and uh, thing Chips. So that was like, a, you know, almost like our, you know, it was like a decade where that was our cowboy movies. Anyway, so Jim is a ordained minister. He's been a minister for a long time and he's got a lot of passions. And one of them is science fiction. And I stumbled upon it and I welcome Jim back to Garden of Doom. Thank you so much for gracing us with your presence and your knowledge today. Thank you for having me. So I know that you want to start with some old school stuff. Um, I, I promised the crowd we're going to talk about some things that you definitely know about. Maybe you know about all of it. And by you, I mean audience you. Um, but you want to start with an old movie called First Man on the Moon. That was actually uh, a silent movie in the 1880s uh, or 1890s. And uh, it was made a, a, a popular movie in around 1958, I believe it was, maybe 19. Around 58, 59, or 60, some, somewhere in that time frame. Anyways, what's interesting about this, the silent film, they, uh, the, the whole idea was, uh, it, was it was actually uh, Great Britain, British, that had uh, created a giant rocket, like gun, and it, they sent a bullet-like ship to the moon. And, of course, you've probably seen the cartoon pictures where the bullet hits the man on the moon in the eye and, and then the people get out and they meet people that are inside little grasshopper-like people that are inside the moon. Long story short on that one, what's, what's really amazing is the, the uh, trajectory, the angles, the dates, the, the times, the size of the capsule, the entry and exit. Uh, mathematical formulas are subtly and lightly just presented in the movie as nothing dramatic or big, just... They just briefly mention it. The amazing thing is it fits exactly what NASA did in the 60s to get a man on the moon. The same trajectory, the same size of a castle that the bullet was. That uh, I mean, you know, you can't make this stuff up. The, the, the specific mathematical formulas and everything were there in that movie from 19th century describing what would later happen in the middle of the 20th century. Pretty incredible stuff. Yeah, we've all saw, uh, seen that image. That's for that's for sure. It's about as iconic as uh, when Nosferatu, uh, you know, first yeah, uh, rises. Dracula. Yep. Um, yeah. Probably some of the other early '50s ones would be Earth versus Flying Saucers, um, uh, War of the Worlds, uh, but quite a few of the early the early UFO alien invasion kind of uh, things are. Uh, oh, what's the other one? Um, Oh gosh, the day the earth stood still. Day the earth stood still. I had a feeling. Yeah. Now all of these have very big elements that reflect what we have today. Um, in the Earth versus flying saucers, they realized that these saucers were running on some kind of an electromagnetic grid uh, of sound, and if they created this electronic disruptor, it could disrupt the. Uh, Actually, the type of energy would come from a mercury vortex engine, and they were able to disrupt it by using this sonic weapon against it. These are exact physics of how the Nazis had developed uh, their spacecraft on a mercury vortex type engine. And so the same physics and principles that were in this 1950s movie were actually 
what we had only known as rumors at that time when the movie came out that the Nazis ever had such technology. Now it's pretty well common knowledge, but back in that day, it was something that was only known by paperclip scientists or people that were working on our government that brought over the Nazis uh, to work on NASA and our own programs. So this was not anything that the mainstream was even anywhere near familiar with. Um, then we have... Uh, War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds, yeah. And of course, War of the Worlds, um, almost testing, almost a test to see what we, how we would respond to a situation like that. I'm not saying necessarily that that's what um, it was intended to be, but it ended up being that way. And I think our government got a heads up on that. And so they started programming other future science fiction to test our reaction, to see what, how we would, you know, react as a, uh, as a people or as even individuals. And so this started, you know, branching off like some kind of a dendritic pattern of just, uh, you know, it took lives of its own in different, a little different directions all over the place. So, um, with War of the Worlds, they had these organic machines. Now, the organic machines, I tell you, go all the way back to some of the scriptures about the clouds of heaven. And the clouds of heaven are actually an organic living um, order of an angel called the cherub. And when you do a, an exhaustive study of what are the clouds of heaven that Jesus left in and came back in, you'll find out that it was an order of a, I call them an intergalactic taxi cab. It was an order of an angel, the cherub, which is a little fat, chubby little baby with wings, you know, flying around with a, with a bow and arrow playing Cupid. But they, it was a it was a living vehicle, order of an angel, that would bend space and travel through a wormhole. This is clearly, when you go back to uh, twenty, looking at it at 21st century perspective, it is in Second Samuel, 22nd chapter. It's to, uh, David is singing a song of praise to God for... Um, how he came down from heaven to vanquish his enemies. And in the original Hebrew, you look back on every word in that context, from the first verse down to the 13th, 14th uh, uh, verse in, the, in that chapter, and it gives you a complete peace. He bowed the heavens and came down, yea, uh, dark clouds, uh, pavilions round about him. It really sounds kind of too abstract in the King James original to even understand what the heck is going on here. It kind of sounds like psychobabble. When you go back and look at every word, and every potential word usage in that text, what it could mean. It literally is saying he bent space and came down, a circular covering around him. And it's talking about an, uh, a Rosen ice, ice and a wormhole. It's <laughs> traveling through a wormhole. He's going through the event horizon. Um, something goes before him, which is a sound or vibration that breaks through, and then he comes into the, his realm. Now this cherub is protecting, is a protective covering around God as he's coming into this world of sin. But it's not protecting God, it's protecting the world before Christ came so that God could make even an appearance and not wipe out the whole you know, fallen world. So this was a covering to protect the world from his presence. So this is exactly a living organism that is a space, spaceship. That was the main thing on War of the Worlds. These things came from Mars, but they were living vehicles, and what ultimately killed them was a virus that was just a simple cold on our planet that wiped out the whole thing. Now, in the original movie in the 50s, you know, the church bells were ringing, and they gave, all, they gave God the glory that in his infinite wisdom he planned this and, and allowed this invasion to stop. 
Now, in the newest one, of course, God is not mentioned anywhere. It's kind of like forbidden nowadays. But back in the old one, they gave the glory to God. And that was always had been one of my favorite movies in, in the early 60s, late 50s uh, genre. Um, and we just see a, a constant trend and pattern all throughout the decades, progressively getting deeper into the technology, deeper into you know concepts and ideas. But it started all the way back, you know, as soon as they had film. And has been all the way through, uh, on up to you know the, the Simpsons, and I mean, how in the heck, how in the heck, some of the very specific literal cartoons can predict things 10, 20 years before they actually happened? Um, that's got to tell you, there's more to all of this than what we are ever able to begin to understand. Yeah, the, the, the Simpsons has turned out to be uncanny. It really has. It's amazing. Um, some early, some other early stuff. We're talking about the work of H.G. Uh, Wells and Jules Verne. A lot of that turned into movies. We had the Time Machine and Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, why don't you t- tell us a little bit about those films and sort of how they play into uh, scripture? And uh, I think I'm going to call this show uh, something like Sci-Fi Chapter and Verse. Um, <laughs> well, you know the uh, the center of the Earth with the idea of an inner um, hollow earth, prehistoric animals living there, um, uh, people that lived down there. Uh, the idea that, you know, that, that it was this, not just a, a, a little cave or anything, but it was literally an entire inner sun, inner uh, atmosphere, uh, inner light, inner energy source, oceans, you know, on the concave side or convex side of, of, of earth actually describes with accuracy what the Bible describes as a hollow earth. Now, there's been so much recent exposures. The one documentary that came out that the Ball Brothers came out with on the hollow earth, um, I, amongst many other people, were in that video, and we're beginning to understand a cosmology that, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's impossible. Scientists tell us that, you know, that... um, you know, there's a solid core, there's not no hollow earth, that, that's impossible, can't be. And I remind these people, I said, no, you know, you're quoting the same people that told us that we came from a monkey. So why would you believe, you not believe that part, and you're going to believe this part? Because, why, they're legitimate, they're credible science? No, they're not, they're, they're fake science, they're pseudoscience. They're covering stuff up. Just go to the Smithsonian Institute, which was actually originally formed in the 1840s, to contain all the goodies that they were going to find at the expedition to the Antarctic to find the opening of the hollow earth. Of course it failed. It didn't work out, but you know where they got most of their source reference for even considering, I mean, Washington actually, um, funded and promoted the expedition, uh, in 1848, I think it was Sims, uh, expedition to the South, to the South pole and it failed. But, um, it was backed up by scripture. They believed from the scriptures that there was an opening to a hollow earth, and so they were going out to find it. Um, it didn't work out for them. Um, there was a second later uh, expedition, and that one, the guy saw that it was you know, not going to be any good, so he took off and went out to the Pacific somewhere and, and found something else equally as good. So he kind of saved his own military career, the fact that he disobeyed orders, but uh, uh, all was not lost. However... Anything to do with giants, anything to do with inner Earth, uh, continually gets sent to uh, the Smithsonian Institute. Kind of a traditional thing. They're the ones the museum was set up originally for that, so that's where everything goes. 
my gosh, back in the 1860s uh, with full documentation from, uh, from people that were creditable archaeologists, had sent in a skull with horns on it. It disappeared. Okay. And nothing more was said about it. Now it's made into a big joke, you know. But the thing is, the more you research it, you find out, no, this had legitimate um, authenticity to, to the whole thing. I mean, these weren't quacks or, or nuts or anything. They they found it. They had taken uh, tests and some measurements to it, but they sent it to, into the Smithsonian, figuring that they would, you know, further develop and validate it, and it got lost. Where in the scripture does it talk about the hollow earth? And, and literally, like, I'm sure you're going to cite chapter and verse. I know you can because I've heard you do it before. So uh, just to keep the theme of the show going. Okay, well, um, right out of the words of Jesus, when he was in Matthew, he was describing... Um, he was describing Lazarus and the rich man. Now, in the proper way to approach the Bible, we call it hermeneutics in in the West. Uh, in the East, there's also Pardis, which is a level of uh, any rabbinical student going to the um, to study the scriptures learns about Pardis, which is a four-level, like, onion layer of interpretations that... Uh, Every Hebrew knows because that's the way the Hebrews wrote. Um, it's not taught in the West. I don't know why, because it's, it gives us a deeper, richer understanding of scriptures. But uh, both of them have one thing that's important, and that is that, that whatever the most basic literal term of the scripture is saying, these other levels of interpretation that are deeper cannot overturn or change the original source and meaning and intention of the, the simplicity of the uh, surface rendering of it. So it would only enhance it. It would only add to it. So in hermeneutics, uh, one of the rules of engagement is if it's an allegory, no specific name or geographical location is ever mentioned. It's something about a man from a far country came to a place and did this and this. And, and it's just to be allegorical. It's just a story to tell or it's to make real an abstract thought or an idea or a sense of morally, morality. If it's an actual historical narrative, it will mention a person's name. It'll also give us a location. When we have those, this is a historical narration. This is something that really happened, not, a, not an allegory. So Lazarus and the rich man is a historical representation of something that really happened. Lazarus sat up behind at the, the gates of, of this palace where this man had lived, uh, the rich man. And it was, you know, outside of Jerusalem. And, uh, he died and went to uh, Sheol, the upper level of, of different levels of hell. And uh, the, the, the Lazarus, he died and went to Abraham's bosom. Now, this is where you actually go to college to learn to play catch up on outdated terminology, outdated cultural idioms that we don't even aren't aware of yet nowadays because we've lost uh, lost touch with a dead language that's no longer spoken with uh, customs that are no longer understood because uh, we don't wear togas anymore. So the idea of Abraham's bosom, I've heard, you know, a different uh, Western commentary say, well, this was the fondness that Abraham had for, I mean, that God had for Abraham for his uh, trust and faith and belief in him, whatever. And, and so it's just comparing that this man had that kind of faith and, so the bosom meaning the heart, you know, it was like a connection between Abraham and, and the rich, the uh, Lazarus who had passed away. No, that's not even, not even it. Back in the day when people wore a uh, toga, they would tie a, a sash around the waist. And then from the waist to the four, 
uh, front to like where the neck is. It was like a shopping bag. So if you went shopping, you used the bosom and you'd put food in there and stuff and store it up until you, you know, purchased it, took it home, like a shopping bag. Like a papoose, now, right? Pardon? Like a papoose. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. Like exactly. a baby, like a baby Bjorn. Yeah, and so a shepherd out in the field, if the a baby sheep kept wandering off, you know, it's going to get eaten by a predator because that's what they're waiting for. So sometimes they would break one of the legs and then put them in the bosom of in this pocket as the shepherd is carrying it around so it can't escape and it can't get hurt. And they're fast at healing. You know, baby, I, I read that one too. I go, this seems awfully cruel. Because then I read in a, a Bible dictionary, um, Ungers, I just, and I just looked it up and it gives you a whole long description of why they did it and how they did it. And, and it wasn't, didn't seem so cruel or crude. Um, that's what I like about it. there's different reference materials that you can use. And if you know the right source, you look at them up and you can pretty much do a good scholarly, uh, you know, any average person who's interested enough and has a little discipline to want to search it out can come to a good conclusion on some of these things, just having the right source of information. So in the Umbers Bible Dictionary, it describes this whole process of what a bosom actually is. It's, it's understood in, in their day and time as being an inner pocket to your clothing. So when Abraham's bosom is where Lazarus went, it was an inner pocket inside the earth. How can we prove that? Well, when Jesus was dying on the cross, the one thief, you know, was mocking Christ, and the other thief said, Lord, remember me when you uh, come into paradise. And he said, this day, or when you come to your own, he says, this day you shall be with me in paradise. Now, Jesus didn't go and ascend into heaven until 40 days later. But the moment he died, he went into paradise. Where? Inside the earth, in the upper chamber. And then he describes the whole physics to it. He said that there was an upper chamber, and that's where he went, that's where the thief went, that's where Lazarus went. And they were, it's like a holding chamber until Christ came, and then those people were freed so that to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. When Jesus resurrected after three days of being there, then some of the people that were in that place went up into Jerusalem and testified to the resurrection. I think that would be pretty convincing uh, to see people that were once dead now walking the streets testifying to the resurrection. The rest of them went and ascended into heaven to be with the Lord, so that now to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. He led captivity captive. This was the whole process that was being described. So there's definitely an inner earth. There is scriptures all throughout Psalms, all throughout Proverbs, um, and some in Job, describing a very accurate picture of what a hollow earth consists of and how it works and how it functions. So... So this isn't just you know a, a make-believe idea. This is a concept that is I I actually say it's sound doctrine. It's it, there's no speculation about it. When you rightly divide the word, there is enough significant scriptural evidence that this is in fact where paradise is. And if that's where paradise is, that opens up the store for understanding everything in the end, where we see this locus of Beijing coming from inside the earth to the outside of the earth where we see that there's a lot of kinds of activity going on that's centered around something inside coming out. Uh, we saw this in Genesis 6, uh, something came inside to the outside. So there's a repetitive pattern of something significant about inside the earth. We would all refer to it as hell, but I don't know how many of us actually really realize that it's a literal physical place. Um, I wouldn't want to go visit it myself, you know, <laughs> literally physically, but it's there and... It's made obvious. Now, the interesting thing is 
that Jesus said that there was a chasm in between the upper and the lower, in between the paradise, which was a good place, and the lower, which was a bad place. But there was a chasm in between. Now, the chasm wouldn't allow anybody to cross over from one to the other, but they could see each other, they could talk to each other, but they couldn't cross over. This chasm is described further in Job as a place of dangling doors. Sometimes they're open, sometimes they're closed. This chasm is on a 33.3 degree latitude line of our Earth. Do you know what's on the 33.3 degree line? Well, I do oh, because I've had you on the show before and I saw okay. your presentation since. But, yeah, right. uh, but uh, just to test me, I'm going to Roswell, uh, the Bermuda Triangle, the uh, I think you said it was the Devil's Triangle, uh, yeah. and uh, and there were some other sites as well. There were on Mount, uh, Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon. The Guidestones and the Georgia Guidestones, which are um, what are the Georgia Guidestones, by the way? The Georgia Guidestones are 10 different languages, uh, with 10 different like commandments, and it's called uh, Agenda 21. That in order to have it a sustainable planet, manageable uh, population, the Earth population has to be reduced to, um, I think it was 250. Let's see, what was it? Uh, 250 million people. So uh, I think it was like 6.1 billion people have to die. Yeah, it's a lot less than, than we have now. Yeah, yeah, it's probably a little bit more now uh, as we've grown more. But but so in this in this um, they call it the Georgia Guidestones because it's our they call it the American Stonehenge. It's arranged something like Stonehenge. It's in 10 different languages with the 10 different statements. It's almost a mockery of the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like uh, Satan's same but opposite of everything that God does. He does the opposite. So on this line, uh, they give you the, the Ten Commandments, uh, and which actually is 10 strategic steps towards coming to this, uh, this end, this desired goal. And so far, they're pretty well sticking on target. Now, nobody knows who put the ten, the... the Georgia Guidestones there. It was somebody, probably one of the elite or something, staying anonymous, but it was erected erected on that site on purpose because it was on the 33.3. But the interesting thing is that um, it it lines up perfectly with with all of the most supernatural, crazy stuff that's ever happened uh, on the world. That's where the, the Tower of Babel once stood, um, and, and it's... It's a mirror image. If you look at where the Tower of Babel and Mount Hermon is, and then you go to the other side where Roswell, New Mexico, where Phoenix, Arizona is between there, it's almost a mirror image of everything that's on the, from the east over to the west. One and, of the, uh, this might have been you or it might have been one of the other presenters, but they pointed out that there was a translation error that, that in Genesis – said the giants that we've translated now to say the giants were on the earth, but the actual original old Hebrew and, and maybe even modern Hebrew, somewhere along the lines, it went from the giants were in the earth to the giants were on the earth. Uh, most of your translations say on because obviously there's no in, inner earth, so it couldn't mean in. Yet only the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a direct translation into modern English uh, from the ancient Hebrew, or the Septuagint, or the King James Version, specifically says in the earth. Because when Cain killed Abel, he did it in the process of time, which was in the last days, that's just prior to the flood. 
So, I mean, Cain and Abel were making a lot of babies all the way, you know, 900 and some years. So there wasn't anything pure white or pure black or, or anything else. No, the, 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 once Cain had killed Abel, then Seth was the replacement. We know by specific order that the, uh, that the brown race was descendants from Seth. And there was an important reason to let everybody know what his lineage was from the time of him right up to modern days, because that would be the line that the, the Jesus Christ was going to come from. But there was a usurper who was trying to be claiming the firstborn rights, and that was going to be the descendants of Cain. Now, Cain was sentenced to wander in the land of Nod, east of Eden, away from the face of the earth and the face of God to be hidden in the earth so that he could be protected. So when you look at all the attributes of Cain after he killed Abel, you know, and, and was living, it just simply says that this is what Cain did for the next five, uh, I think it was five generations after he killed Abel. Um, it says that sin had permeated his very essence. And God says, if you had not obeyed and followed me, would I have not accepted you? But now you have done this, sin has crouched like an, like an animal to, to saturate you. So after the death, he became the first murderer to the first prophet. The first murderer was sentenced to wander inside the land. He was afraid of being captured and killed. So God says, okay, I'm going to put you inside the earth. I'm going to hide you there, and you're going to stay there until your appointed time. So so there we have it. We have, we have quotes and, and excerpts from throughout Scripture about a hollow earth, which... Yes. Which goes back to, brings us back to Journey to the Center of the Earth. And, and all of the, the new Godzilla movies are all based on there being a hollow earth and titans, uh, you know, down there and traveling through shortcuts. The dinosaurs. Dinosaurs, exactly. And, and that if you went far enough, you sort of went through what they called a gravity inversion and you ended up in like a paradisical type of land, yeah. uh, uh, you know, in the earth with, you know, uh, it was like a sun-like, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly what, how they described it. They, they didn't really try, but there, there was that. So, and there's plenty of movies like that. I mean, we have the original Journey to the Center of the Earth, the, the remake. Um, as you point out, there's Iron Sky 2 really dealt with the, the hollow earth. But, uh, um, and, and my book, my favorite book, and I don't know if you've read it, and I don't know if you're going to want to read it, and there's parts of it I think you'd love, and there's parts of it I think that you might despise, uh, but it's called The Descent, and it, it has to do with hell being a real place, and there being races of, of people called Hadels uh, that, that live under the earth, and they've lived there you know, for tens of thousands of years, though they've sort of lost their society, but that Satan is real, and sort of like how butterflies, you know, spread their memory through DNA that, you know, Satan's almost like the Dalai Lama, you know, it's like a title where the consciousness passes from one person to another. Right. Um, but you might, I don't know, try it. You, you, you might like it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's heavy, but uh, sometimes I feel like I'm a commercial for that book and I don't get well, you paid. Know, you need to give me the connection to that. I will definitely look it up because I, I read a lot of other variations and books and everything that the Daros and the Taros, I think it was. And, uh, some guy from uh, Pennsylvania that wrote that. Um, oh, there's just a, a lot of different ones that I uh, looked at. There was one, now believe it or not, I got it from an occult scholar. It was He was writing a book about the escape of the Nazis to the base 211 in the Antarctic. And uh, he had referred to a guy named H.M. Howell, which was a 19th century theologian 
who had wrote a book called The Cosmic Problem Solved, and he was saying, you know, Eden wasn't on the surface on, in the Middle East like most people think. Eden was actually inside the Earth, east of, of Eden. And when you look at it, the, the Earth as being hollow, the east is in the west and the west is in the east. It's just opposite because it's a mirror image of what's on the outside. So wherever east of Eden would be, it would be west on the surface. Because the actual Eden being on the east side, we're looking at it from underneath. But on the surface, it would be west. So where most of your giants appear, now giants appear all over the world. Most of the smaller ones that are mummified or um, uh, either mummified or, or bleached bones are from post-flood. The really big giants, the 30-foot ones, they are pre-flood because they are fossilized, and that's the result of fossils. Now, when you look at those uh, fossil remains, just the size of them alone compared to the ones afterwards, there's a big difference there. And the problem is, and with race being such a touchy-feely thing anymore, you can't mention anything, there's particular things about the 30-foot giants that are not meant, ever mentioned. First off, there's only fully adult male giants. There are no baby giants. There are no adolescent giants. There's no female giants. They're all fully developed male giants. Why? Because something was going on in Genesis 6 where something that appeared to come from the heavens was on earth cohabiting with the human race. So the giants that were inside the earth thought, okay, we know that someday this scenario is going to happen. Maybe this is our time to take over the surface of the world. So they went. Up, they sent a male contingency up there to investigate, a reconnaissance mission, you might say. So when the Bible says that there was a day when the sons of God came in and the daughters of men, and the same bore children. Oh, and there were giants in the earth in those days also. Uh, and also after that, when the sons of God came in and the daughters of men. Then it goes, and they bore children. The same became the mighty men of renown, the Gabor. Right. The Gabor are the offspring, not the giants. The giants were simply going from inside the earth, outside, to see if this was their time. And it wasn't. So when the flood came, they just went back into the earth because, hey, that's where God sent them anyway. You know, they were the descendants of Cain. Well, let's no, tie this back I, into uh, into sci-fi okay. uh, movies because we actually uh, we did the, the giants already, yeah. and uh, even though this will probably drop a few weeks after that, uh, so you know the, the 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 giants and the Gabor. Well, what's the difference between the Gabor and the Nephilim? Okay, the those big fossil giants were all Caucasian. They were all Caucasian. They were all white. You look at the attributes of of Cain. And they're the same as Japheth. Japheth was the founder after the flood of the white race, the patriarch of the white race. Um, you look at his attributes, they're identical to Cain's. Identical. There was a prophecy that later on in, in the days, there would be a group who would be searching for their origins inside the earth. And they would be like relatives or cousins that would accidentally land and unite and join with them. And Helena Vobaski wrote about this in her book, um, um, Secret Doctrine. There's Cosmogenesis and Anthropomorphus, which is two different volumes, huge, horribly hard to read. I actually read both of them, and uh, what a trip that was. <laughs> a lot of psychobabble, a lot but, of craziness. But, but let's skip ahead a little bit, though, on that. So the giant white guys, which are you know sort of bad guys, are they yeah. are they the Nephilim? Yeah, they're the Nephilim. 
and they came to see if this was their time, and it wasn't, so they went back down. Now, now as the canopy uh, was bursted up above, it changed all of the, it changed everything on the surface of the Earth. We didn't have any six-foot uh, wingspan dragonflies anymore. Um, everything shrunk down in size because of the microdon, my, my, mitochondrial. My thank you, mitochondrial breakdown was due to the harmful rays of the sun coming in and reducing age, size, and everything. But inside the Earth, it also had an effect so that you were no longer 30-foot giants. After the flood, you were 15-foot giants at maximum. Most of them, seven and a half, eight and a half foot giants. And they're found all over the world. But so, all of the big giants are found primarily in the United States. So that's right, that's that's where I want to go to with the sci-fi because yeah. I want to try to distinguish between them and see if I'm right. And you tell me if I'm right or wrong, and you can correct me or add scripture to it. But okay. the but the Gabor, it sounds like might be like the the, the creatures that, that take over the possession in the movie Fallen, where Denzel Washington is, is a cop tracking like a serial killer, but it's it it the, the serial killer is a demonic spirit that's going from person to person, which of course makes it hard to catch. And if I understand that correctly, that would be a, a Gabor spirit or would that be a different kind of demon? No, I think you're, you hit it right on the target, right on the head. Um, some of them would still remain in a physical form, but most of them became the disembodied spirits we call demons. Before the flood, there were no demons. That's why you could follow your consciousness because there was no invisible spirits messing with your heads. The invisible spirits are the ones that have been put in a ghost-like state, the Rephaim, which means ghost of the giants. Um, and, but the giants being, they were a combination of whatever was up there that wasn't fully redeemable human beings were, were like part one and part two. Some of them were augmented humans. Some of them were um, uh, com completely no longer redeemable humans, which would be the giants. So you had the ones that did die in the flood and the ones that, that um, did not survive. And then all the rest of humanity had been contaminated, forensically contaminated. How were they contaminated? Well, they were augmented. So um, these other giants in like the world they, of sci-fi and fantasy, maybe yeah. they're like trolls or ogres, um, maybe the abominable snowmen or Bigfoot types. But in the, in, well, those are all sci-fi, I suppose, but in a movie that we talked about earlier in pre-production, would those be, I mean, obviously they did it in a smaller size because of actors and the special effects in the seventies, but could, could the, the giants that were sort of, um, disfigured humans, uh, be gargoyles in from the well, movie gargoyles? Absolutely. Because we have a, we have a verse in scripture that says that all, for all the, uh, life had departed its ways or become corrupted. And when you look in the Hebrew there, it means that they were being manipulated. They were, some of the Frankenstein stuff we hear rumors about, you know, mixing human genes with uh, animals and stuff, that's not new. That's Dr. Moreau. Back then. That's why we've got, you know, Tales of the Harpies, the Minotaur, you know, all these other things. They were real. They weren't just myths. They were real genetic manipulations going on during that time before the flood. So we got everything from you know, part human lizards, part human, you know, you name it, and, and it's there. Insects, uh, uh, everything. We, they were just placing everything and anything, and everything was just getting so out of hand. God said, you know, wipe this out, man. This is getting out of hand. Um, so that's why the flood was there, because, you know, because of the activity they were doing then is what we're doing today. So, yeah, absolutely. That's where all these things are, you know, are reappearing now.
just as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's why they're all thrown in there. And in the inner earth, time is a little bit different than it is above here. Um, people live to be almost a thousand years down in the center of the earth. So the ones that decided to come back up and live on the earth's surface, they made a great sacrifice because they're not going to live that long then. Well, that's very but, Genesis. It's not just Genesis, though. It's also uh, Sumerian and, uh, and the Egyptian. Yeah. So, yeah, that, 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 it, oh, all, yeah. it all sort of checks. This might take us off topic, and I regret it if it does, sort of, but I don't because I don't know when I'm going to have someone like you on again. And you, you brought him up. What happened to Lazarus? Like, I, I used to joke that Lazarus is the first vampire because, like, he was dead, he got raised, and then we sort of never hear about him again. But I say we never hear about him again, but I'm not an expert on Scripture. So did we never hear about him again, or do we know what happened to Lazarus? Well, we know that Lazarus lived and, and continued on, you know, in regular life. He did die, um, but he didn't, you know, so when he was resurrected, he was fully human. He was fully alive. He wasn't like part, you know, the undead or a zombie or anything like that. It's too bad. But, uh, but, but you know, I, I would not put it past Satan to try to, you know, there's something to all this zombie stuff. Now, when, when people were resurrected from God's way, you know, and went into the towns and proclaimed, you know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm sure that Satan is going to do everything the same but opposite. So he's going to have his own resurrection version of that. Is it going to be more looking like a zombie apocalypse or something? I don't know. Let's let's live it out and find out because I think very soon we're going to find out all this stuff. Anything God did, Satan's going to do in a counteractive opposite way. Well, now and you're talking like, my he, language. Now we're talking vampires and stuff. So, but with, yeah. But I can't just leave Lazarus. So Lazarus just went back to doing whatever he was doing and presumably sure. retired somewhere in Mount Olive or whatever. <laughs> Probably. And lived to be a right old age, right old age and, and glorified God for, you know, uh, for what had been done. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. That's, that's fine. Know there's legends that say that the, uh, the Roman guard that, that pierced uh, Jesus is still alive today. One of them said that John's still alive today because he said that you know, there would be some that would not see death until he saw all things fulfilled. Well, John uh, in Patmos saw everything fulfilled in a vision. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that there's been some human being that's lived agelessly all throughout the centuries or anything. It doesn't say that it couldn't happen. I'm, you know, I'm open to that. But when I see it in Scripture, I, I will uh, stick to it and cling to it. But I don't see it as an absolute. But it is something that, you know, has been presented to me. And I go, well, you know, I'm not saying it isn't. But I don't see it conclusively that it is either. I think we got to remain, you know, kind of that flexible and open on things that haven't happened yet. Well, all, all monsters can be tied to something biblical because we only have to look as far as Lilith, who uh, was the mother of monsters and and basically got away and basically talked a couple of pursuing angels into letting her go. So, well, and there's legends of a Lilith uh, before predating Adam and Eve, but you know, in the Bible, it says that that uh, the former things are not known, even as the things today will not be known to, for the world to come. So that's telling me right there, God's not telling us what happened before Adam and Eve, but he's letting us know something was there. Makes sense. We don't know what it is. You know what? God's not telling me, so I'm putting my fingers in my ears and just going, ah, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> it's, it's all, it, the, every lie has to have an element of truth. There might be element of truth there, but if God isn't telling me what that truth is, I don't want to hear it. I'm not interested in it because he says, I'm not telling you. Okay, that's good enough for me. Well, let's go back so, to God and yeah. sci-fi because I took yeah. us off that track. Uh, I'm sorry, but the, 
Lazarus and Lilith are like very curiosity are curiosities to me. So 2001, a space odyssey filled with all sorts of messages. Take it away. Well, look at the monolith, you know, how it starts out, you know, in the first awareness of, of a sentient being using a bone as a weapon and, you know, and whooping somebody. Now what's happened recently, we had all of these columns appear like a monolith and then is a spear. I was, uh, I swore if one ever showed up in front of my house, I was going to throw all my garbage in there and just get rid of it. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, they're enticements to bring us into being intrigued and wanting to find human nature. We want to, we're either going to be terrified to death or we're going to want to know the secrets of this. What does it mean? How does it, it's, it's a seduction enticement and they're not done with it. They're, they're doing that to keep our eyes in the wrong direction and be intrigued into finding out basically junk information. But 2001 space Odyssey was a perfect example of that. The, the, Second one that came out, 2010, increased it onto more of a quantum physics level. So, and we're now just beginning to understand that. So, it made more sense with the space time, you know, fluctuations and everything. So, this is all preparation, it's all conditioning. I think that's why they call it TV programming. Their programming is for the end time deceptions to get used to science as the unchallengeable, unquestionable God. And let's go into one of one from your list, so the Philadelphia Experiment, which I remember with Michael Pare, there was a like an aircraft carrier, a battleship that was lost in a time vortex. Oh, I, I think that Martin Sheen was in it, but yeah, tell tell us about that one. And, and oh, Martin Sheen was in the other one. Um, that was the World War Two one, where they were the uh, uh, oh, what was it? The big battleship goes, or the aircraft carrier goes back to the day before Pearl Harbor. Right, right. That wasn't <laughs> the, that wasn't, the, okay, well tell us about the Philadelphia yeah. Experiment, because obviously I have that one confused with a different movie. Well, the Philadelphia Experiment, I actually had a chance to talk to Al Bellick, who claims to be the, the sailor that had jumped a uh, ship in 1984 from 1943. 1943, they were trying to degloss the hull of a uh, USS Eldridge ship. Deglossing means they were trying to make it invisible to electronic detection uh, for the mines that were, you know, filling all the East Coast uh, harbors and everything. Uh, the Germans had set in, you know, mines. So they were trying to make it invisible. Well, they were using Tesla coils, and they had two of them, uh, you know, opposed, and somehow it literally took the ship out of 1941 to the harbor in 1984. And it just appeared for a little bit and then came back. But when it came back, it came back with some of the men embedded into the hull. Um, there was a like a greenish light that just appeared over the ship and then like a flash and then it just disappeared out of the harbor. They didn't know what the heck was going on. Um, it's funny that uh, the two, two of the researchers that were the primary people working on it, uh, Nikola Tesla and Edison, I mean Edison Einstein, were used as uh, advisors, but they weren't directly involved in it. Now, Tesla became irritated because he saw that his technology was being, he was afraid it was being misused. He was trying to warn them of the dangers and they weren't listening. And of course it was after the fact that after that happened, uh, I guess they should have listened to him. But um, in 1984, it was supposed to have reappeared and two of them, two of the sailors jumped off. Of course the the sci-fi movie was fantastic. I I just loved it. You know, they, they met a gal and they were trying to get back to the scientists to, 
see if he couldn't start it back up to bring them back. Somehow he was creating this, uh, this uh, wormhole that was starting to suck things up and nobody knew where it was going or anything. And so he had to start his experiment back up to connect with 1941 to somehow bring the two together so that they could be redistributed in the right stream or the right way. Um, in the second series, it ended up that they caught a, one of the uh, F-15s was caught up in this transference and was sent back to Nazi Germany just, uh, in 1943, and it enabled the Nazis to bomb uh, Washington, and they ended up winning the war. So we see a whole different scenario in that picture um, where they had to go back and stop it from happening. See, if you can manipulate time, you can keep, you know, erasing your mistakes by going a little bit earlier ahead of time. But the whole thing was mocking Operation Paperclip. Uh, it was it was almost like a big giant what if, but it was using technology that was just beginning to be understood then. The interesting thing that I noted, though, was the physics. The What we could see, the bright glowing green and then all of a sudden like a fog and then all of a sudden it disappears. That is exactly what people have experienced uh, on the Devil's Triangle or the Devil's Sea over in, in uh, Japan off the coast there. Things would get... Uh, like stormy, the compass, compasses would go crazy. All of a sudden, this green-like storm cloud would come by and it would cover over, and then this object or the planes or whatever was there would disappear, never to come back again. So that is the great gulf fixed between the upper and lower chambers of this hollow earth, but it is also the, the place where things disappear. So the physics of, of the Philadelphia experiment is the same that we see along this 33.3-degree line. So it makes a lot of other science fiction pictures become a whole lot more common and sensible to what's going on. Revelation 9, it talks about uh, an angel coming with a key to the bottomless pit, and they open it up, and then it gives eight descriptions of what's coming out. One of the descriptions says, and the sound of their wings is the sound of many chariots in the battle. Now, I was looking up sounds because the Lord kept telling me to, you know, look that up and when I looked it up it just blew my mind because it didn't have anything to do with the sound of hearing anything it was sound as an address a sonic and a, a, a sonic vibratory type of an address somebody was dialing something in length height width and time and that is exactly what CERN is doing so here we have in Revelation 9 giving us a whole different description that the whole reason why this pit is being opened is because somebody is dialing in coordinates, literally like Stargate or something, dialing in coordinates to open up a wormhole so that you have something come out or come in. It's interesting that you bring up sound because it, you know, I, I was listening to another show uh, on something else entirely, but they brought up that, uh, you know, I think it had to do something with the Ethiopians and, and how they believe that the Ark of the Covenant was in Ethiopia, but it, but it, you know, so it you know wasn't taken by the Templars or or whatnot, and it might still be in Ethiopia. That aside, that's just the background of the podcast I was listening to. But it, it reminded me of that the, that the Ark was used uh, by the Israelites to defeat the much superior Egyptian forces, and then also I, I believe to. Uh, to knock down the walls of Jericho after walking around it seven times. And it seems like that's sort of like similar to like an electric, uh, electromagnetic pulse kind of weapon kind of thing. 
Yeah. Have you ever thought well, about well, that? Well, yeah. The, you know, the, what brought down the walls was a shabar. They walked around seven uh, seven times, seven days in a row, um, blowing the shabar, and they all did it in unison. You know, while they were going around it. And the last time when they all blew the shabar at the same time, and it literally broke, blew the walls down. But then again, it was it was. See, I don't believe in magic. People say that there's magic, you know, when you're chanting things. Well, if, if there's anything at all, it's the physics of what you're chanting and how you're using the harmonics that is creating something. It's, it's reaching over space, time, and uh, dimension. Because even Nikola Tesla said if you want to understand the universe, you understand elect uh, electricity, uh, sound, and vibration. Um, there's a cartoon that my kids used to watch when they were kids called uh, He-Man. And when they made a movie out of it, I thought it was just incredible how it mocked everything that I think the Bible is saying. What's coming out of the inner earth are large, huge, beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, red-haired, green-eyed uh, male men and women who are perfect samples of the perfect Aryan uh, Caucasian. These are what's coming out. Something that looks like He-Man is coming out. And he's got a little alien assistant, Orko. And guess what Orko has in his hands? He's got a Cluster of crystals, and when he taps it, bing, 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 then it opens up a wormhole, and they travel through it. Gee, that's just coincidence, right? I don't think so. Especially the theme of that, you know, it was saying, oh my gosh, it's, you know, Orko was saying, well, um, it's easy to open up the hole, but it's the tunes. The tunes are what gives it direction, and, and I don't remember the tune. He says, oh, and then the one kid that's there with him, so you mean this tune? Uh, and he requoted the tune. He says, yeah, that's it. Okay, we can do this then. So he did the tune, and then they escaped from where they were at and got back to where they belong by opening up a wormhole. So, you know, incredible stuff. I, I, you know, I got that in one of my videos. I said, do you realize what you just saw? Here's this buffed uh, Nordic who just has an alien assistant who just enabled them to travel space, time, and dimension. That's exactly what Joe... Chapter 24 through 42 is telling you when you realize that Leviathan is not Beanie the Cecil Serpent. It's not an alligator. It's not a hippo. It's not um, a plesiosaur. It is the father of the children of pride. Satan is a collective noun, meaning this is describing the entire embodiment of rebels, who they are, where they are, what they're doing, and how they're doing it. And once you see that, you see a whole narration of everything that's going on right now in our present time with uh, one of the ocean currents slowing down, Antarctica is melting, we're seeing cities, we're seeing pyramids, we're seeing technology breaking through at, uh, four miles of ice. Um, during the Obama administration, those guys didn't come up from all over the world just to feed penguins. They were going to look and see what kind of goodies they're about to receive. Because when you get something wet in fresh water, it doesn't rot away or anything. It's dry it out, push the button, it's good to go. So... A lot of interesting things are happening in the Antarctic, and everybody's looking over in the Middle East thinking it's happening in the Middle East, and it's not happening there. It's happening here. Well, talking, well talking about harmonics and crystals mm -hmm. and creatures that are less than idyllic and less than uh, beautiful and perfect, let's talk about maybe this show's favorite show, Land of the Lost, which is... I think <laughs> it, 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 it's it's either an inner earth or it's a purgatory. Either way, it works for for me. Let's see what you think. Because we got our sleeve stacks, which are you know not too. They actually didn't even look that much different than 
than the gargoyles in that movie from the 70s. But there's right. crystals, you've got the pylons, you've got weather control, you have time travel, you have harmonics, you have the the really fallen slee stacks, you have the ones that are still advanced but but made a mistake by going forward in time instead of back in time and then you know didn't realize their own pride was what did them in. And then you've got the humans and I, I don't know, everything. So Land of the Lost, you know, go biblical with me on Land of the Lost. Well, you know, when I first heard about the movie, I thought it was going to be kind of silly because it had some comedians, you know, that were in the movie and I thought it was just going to be a big joke. And somebody told me, Jim, you ought to see it. You know, it's got this in it. It's got, you're kidding, really? Okay, I got to watch this. And I did and I'm going, oh my gosh, who's going to ever believe me that there's more truth in this movie than any of them I've seen since The Matrix? I mean, this is just incredible. Um, it, it was. I mean, it, it talks about all the different entities. Um, which, if you understand the Gen- Genesis 6 um, of what was really going on, it was just confirming all of it. And this was just almost what they were describing is this was actually what would be normal, what we, we'd expect if we could actually, if you wanted to take an expedition and go down there, that's exactly probably what you would see. It's exactly what that movie was. Of course, they made it comical and everything, but it was it was very accurate in all of its descriptions. Even the different types, the levels, uh, the purposes and reasons, you know, they didn't all end up there because they wanted to go down there. Some of them did. Some of them were duped. Some of them, you know, they goofed up and got on the wrong side. I think Judas Iscariot was the same way. He didn't despise Jesus. He loved Jesus. But he thought instead of obeying the words of Jesus, Jesus needed his help. He needed to help Jesus force his hand. Then, then everything will work out the way I think it should work out. So the whole lesson in the whole thing was that, that G, uh, Judas made his mistake by not obeying God, but trying to help God, by not listening to God. And so when he, and it says right at that time, when he was going to go ahead and finalize, you know, the betrayal, the betrayal was the fact that, he wasn't trying to betray Jesus. He didn't want 30 shekels that meant nothing to him. He wanted to force God's hand to do what he thought God should do. God doesn't need our advice. He doesn't need our help. He just needs our obedience. And that's where he failed. He did not obey God. And he tried to do things himself. So it says that Satan entered into him. Then he was called the son of perdition, the man of sin. That's two names for the Antichrist. That's two names for the spirit of Antichrist. So then when the devil departed from him, what did he do? He was so full of remorse, he went and hung himself. He couldn't live with himself because he, everything that he planned, the man that he loved, Jesus Christ, died. He blew it. He knew he blew it. He couldn't live with himself. So even in this movie, some of those skeezics, like you were saying, you know, they didn't really want to be there. They, they screwed up. They, they know they did. But they made the same mistake, basically, that... that uh, uh, Judas made. Yeah, there's so much in Land of the Lost in the old series and in the movie. Oh, yeah. Just so much that's there, and 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 I just love all the symbolism and uh, and I like how you tie it back uh, into uh, biblical terms. One of the things that's unfortunate is that you didn't watch the new Battlestar Galactica. I think that I mean, if you ever do, <laughs> email me and we'll have a discussion yeah. on that. Um, and you can probably skip some of the filler episodes. Um, but you, we both watched the old one and, and obviously that was campier, but I was discussing that there was, there were those episodes where they found like this 
giant ship, which was meant to be like almost like heaven in space with angels, ships and angels. And when the, the pilots went in there, they went in their, their vipers and in their uniforms, which were like brown and tan. But once they were on the ship, they were all white. And they came up with a guy, and I don't remember the actor's name. He died recently, but he was he was in The Saint. He was in The Avengers. Very well-known British actor. Um, anyway, he played a character called Count Ibley. And I always thought it was just because it was supposed to be like Count Evil. But no, Ibley is, from the Quran, is basically like sort of like a Cain figure. that that's someone who disagreed with something that, that God said and was cast out. Um, so, uh, you know, almost a, a, an evil figure. So, uh, that, that's sort of a Bible thing there in, even in the old Battlestar Galactica. Of course, we've got the, uh, the, the colonies were named after constellations and whatnot. But in, in the new Battlestar Galactica, and I mean, it's a spoiler, but it's a, it's a full spoiler from a decade and a half ago. Um, basically it ends with, and there's a lot of spirituality in there, and there's a lot of, uh, basically the Cylons have, advanced and you know they believe that they are perfect except that they can't love and they're learning to love and they're better humans than humans so they need to get rid of the humans but first they need to like breed with the humans because they can't breed on their own so that's that's sort of very nephilim-esque in and of itself um but also in the end they go they find earth uh, following a prophecy, but Earth is basically, it's like a, a nuclear uh, wasteland. But then they find another planet, which is habitable, and it turns out that it becomes Earth, and that there's humans, and it's probably 300,000 years ago, 400,000 years ago, and that the, the the humans that go there, they're the ancient aliens. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. I, I love that ending. So, um, so, I don't know, check that out sometime, but I'm sure we can have a great talk about that. But we can't talk about these things without talking about, it's not really sci-fi, but it's not really not, but the Indiana Jones movies. you got Raiders of the Lost Ark. You've got the Crystal Skulls. I mean, you've got everything. So, you know, uh, what's your take on the, uh, the the Indiana Jones movies? Well, again, it describes the SS Anunnaki, what they were doing, why they were doing it, and how they were doing it in the first movie. It shows, you know, that they were globetrotting around looking for certain uh uh, artifacts, certain um, objects, certain legends and myths that they were pouring over because they, what they were doing, it doesn't say that necessarily, but what they were doing uh, in the movie was they believed that they could find super power, wonder weapons, um, and technology that was encrypted in some of the myths and legends and the artifacts. That the artifacts weren't religious objects to worship, they were actually pieces of technology. So they wanted to get both. They wanted to get the understanding um, from the myths and legends. They wanted to get the artifacts to actually start looking at them as um, as objects of technology, not as objects of, of worship. And so at the SS Anadab at uh, Wellsburg Castle, um, which, by the way, Wellsburg Castle, if you look at it from the air, it literally looks like a uh, an egg cell with a with a spearhead piercing through to get inside of it. Um, and I, that was not by choice, chance either. It was, it was Cain, uh, let's see, what is his, if you take his genealogy and you see the names lined up with uh, what their actual meanings are, it means striked out to possess, um, striked out to possess 
curse or yeah, like curse of God yet given uh, given a strength for his protection or something like that. Uh, I wish I would have had. I thought I had them in my notes here, but I, I don't. It's in my book. But anyways, um, it actually literally tells the tale of of, uh, of Cain and Cain's descendants, which they claim to be you know part of the surface dwellers, and they were in search for the inner dwellers so that they could align and take over the surface of the world. This was some of, based on Helena Blavatsky's writings about the area, and uh, one day it would happen. In Isaiah 14th chapter, that's exactly, it says that, uh, um, it says, uh, how does, it says, O Palestinia, uh, where the branch has been broken off, is going to be used to pluck up from the serpent soil um, a fiery flying serpent. So I looked that up in the original Hebrew and everything, and it, it literally, I drive a lot, and I put a whole chapter in my book on it. When I didn't have to do it, when I was putting my museum together, I find, oh my gosh, God uses word pictures and makes something complicated simple. And if I would only understood that back then, I could have saved me writing a whole chapter because I could just use the. the basically, what it says is that when you see, see the the main symbol for the uh, for the uh, tribe of Dan ended up through evolution. Uh, it ended up being the eagle, and so the main symbol for the Philistines was a swastika. So basically what it was telling you there is when you see the eagle and the swastika come together, know that in this empire, this government, this connection, these are what you're going to see. They're going to manipulate the human genome. They're going to travel space and time and dimension. That's the very thing the Third Reich was working on. What Hitler realized was the Tower of Babel was a tower to liken the things unto heaven. It was their effort to retain the knowledge that existed before the flood, the ability to manipulate the human genome and and to ascend into space, time, and dimension, the very things that it worked on. So the Third Reich was mentioned in the Bible as a prophetic completion to many of the end-time events. And, of course, if you're familiar with the Diglaka, that was a time machine that they were working on. And apparently, I think it was successful because one landed in 1964, or 65, rather, in uh, Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. The other two were seen in uh, Stevensville in 2008. Okay. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, one day I'll have to follow up with you on on those things as well, and also uh, probably do a whole show on the Tower of Babel one day. And and Nimrod, who to this day, it's still a... It's an insult, but I'm not really sure it's appropriate. I mean, maybe in some ways, but not the way it's used. Um, you pointed out two movies, and I have to confess, I haven't seen either of these movies, but you talked about Jupiter Ascending and Interstellar, so I'm going to let you do do a little bit on those movies and, and tie in uh, scripture or biblical interpretations or, or wherever you were going with those two films, because I, I can't well, add much. Jupiter Ascending ties in some of the myths of, uh, of Jupiter, you know, who was one of the uh, gods in the Greek, I think it was. Well, Jupiter is Zeus. Zeus, uh, yeah, Jupiter is Romanized version of, of yeah. Zeus. Yeah. All right. Uh, there's so many. Uh, anyways, uh, they have different names, but they're the same functional gods uh, over certain things. Now, yeah. Jupiter, Jupiter has always been associated with, and so is um, Saturn, with uh, time, time travel, time manipulation. Kronos, you know, the, the god of time. Um, so we have Interstellar, and we have um, a movie, a science fiction movie where. This guy's going out uh, because they have a, not really a, they had a ship that they had sent out there and they lost track of it and everything. So he was going out there to find out what was really happening. Uh, 
the other one, Interstellar, let's see, yeah, Inter Interstellar was where they was looking for the lost ship. Jupiter was where this uh, descendants of the ancient gods or something uh, were from Jupiter, and there they had a manipulation of space, time, and and dimension and everything. They were from originally from Earth and lost their connection with Earth, and so they were there. And it was a story about them getting reconnected back to their her in their heritage on Earth and what used to be. And so all of it is showing that these two gas giants, um, what we're beginning to understand rumor-wise, what I know only because I've been doing this for 20-some years and I have some people in some places that can tell me stuff that uh, I can't do anything about. It just verifies what I've already think I've seen in the scriptures and in the ancient myths and legends, um, that these gas giants are actually not solid fully inside there's uh you get through the gases areas and then there's just a giant ball of plasma energy and inside the plasma energy are like portals that can lead to different directions in the into space we found out our own sun is doing it I, and i don't know whether they did it by accident or what but they found out that the sun has a perpetual fire atmosphere very thin and it's perpetual once you can get through that in like a twinkling of an eye you know a couple of seconds so if you have a you have a um, shuttlecraft that's got all the ceramic tiles on there. It can get through, and inside, it's it's actually inert gas. It's plasma energy, and you're entering into a like a uh, terminal to a airport. And there's portals going in all different directions, and you can choose to which one you want to go through, and instantly end up in that section of the universe. Um, rumors. There's not. I couldn't verify that. There's no way I could verify that. But that, that certain areas have already been, there's already a secret space program going on. Um, there's rumors from all of the myths and legends of all these gods and goddesses that relate to the sun, uh, Ra, relate to uh, Saturn and, and, uh, and Jupiter. There's, there's a commonality there to the ancient gods, one of nine, um, especially uh, Star Trek is, is filled with a lot of this too. And so there's something to it. But. Yeah, I want Star Trek to be our main event. Um, <laughs> yeah, but also, uh, I mean, going into into scripture, we have both Enoch and, and Ezekiel, probably among others, who sort of departed in chariots of fire with you know with basically what sounded like turbine engines. Well, both of them were taken. Um, now, people, some people say, well, you know, they're they're coming back. Well, I don't think they are coming back because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. When you look at that scripture in the original Greek, it's meaning there's a human frailty that, that they're not going to be taken up bodily and kept there alive in this, in this body that we live in. Now they had to be translated, transformed into their eternal body uh, to go through, whether it be the spaghettification of happens when you go through a wormhole. I don't know. I'm not a, theoretical physicist, but I don't know. But I do know what the scriptures say. And uh, uh, and I know what the scriptures say in reference to who does come. When when Jesus was approached by the people saying, you know, is John the Baptist Elijah or do we look for someone else? He says, well, what were you expecting? You were expecting someone in fine raiment coming from a palace. And what did you have? You found a hoary man, which, you know, grizzly, rough you know, ruffian man out in the wilderness as a voice eating, uh, eating honey and locusts. 
honey and locusts were what Bedouin troops, uh, you know, they didn't stay to farm or anything, so they had to live off the land, and that's all there was. Probably I drank in the honey to make the grasshoppers taste a little bit better or something. I don't know, but that uh, I don't know, Lord. I don't think I could do that. But anyways, <laughs> I've actually heard that's not so bad. I, I'm not sure I want to do it either. But yeah, I heard it tastes like popcorn, or you know, I don't chicken popcorn or something. No, thank you. I don't care. I don't want to find out. How does uh, interstellar relate, or how does the concept of portals or or leaving the solar system? How does that relate to uh, any biblical passages? Well, Obadiah 4, it says, Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest amongst the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. So, to make a nest amongst the stars in the Hebrew literally means to colonize, to make a permanent dwelling amongst the stars. A permanent dwelling. Now, in Jeremiah 51, 53, and my claim is these are this is synonymous. It's the same talk as this eagle is setting itself up to make a nest amongst the stars. Now it's referring to Babylon. And if anybody doesn't think we're Babylon, boy, you better do a little bit of Bible study on that one. Um, it says, though Babylon should mount up to the heaven, again, overlapping what was said by Obadiah, and though she should fortify the height of her strength. Now this means they're not just colonizing it, now they're fortifying it, meaning they're defending it. They're ready to defend it against an attack, against somebody trying to stop them from doing what they're doing. Um, yeah, something, because here's what it says next. Yet from me shall spoilers come unto her, saith the Lord. So God's saying, from me, I am going to send spoilers that are going to put a stop to what you're doing. I love this one. Um, Re recently, President Trump has put what was uh, Paper Tiger, the United States Space Force, uh, was originally set up by um, Clinton. And I freaked out when I saw the well, United States Space Force emblem because it has a Star Trek emblem on it. Yes. And I'm going, oh, my God, Trump would ought to know better. Why did he do that? What the heck's going on? It's the biggest deception in the world. That's the last symbol you want to use. Then I did some further study, found out, oh, it's Clinton. Oh, okay, Clinton, you know, I could understand why you would put that on there. Uh, sure, I get it. You're in Because you're in league with those ten crowns, those ten kings that are setting themselves up. You're part of it. So, um, but it was just a paper tiger. Nobody put any teeth into it or made it any kind of a, anything. It was just on paper. So when Trump got in, the first thing he did, he started making these shuttlecraft men that look, I mean, they're like four or five times the size of a regular shuttlecraft. Huge shuttlecraft, and they were going up as top secret payload, you know, during his administration, which nobody ever heard about. Or they didn't, weren't interested in promoting anything that Trump was doing that sounded good. So he was able to fly under the radar, send all these things up. He's the spoiler. God sent him. He is the spoiler that's going to put a stop to all of this. Okay. I got it all in my museum. It's not in my book because this is all new stuff. I'm writing another book. I'm going to have it done by the end of this month ready for publishing and it's all going to be having the upgraded stuff with the quantum physics and all that stuff. But, uh, I'm excited because, you know, I don't want to get into politics or anything, but I'm just saying that, that I truly believe that, uh, Trump was appointed by God, not only to spiritually restore this country, but to physically be having available technology that he would be faithful and use in a way that God would direct it. 
And I'm all into Space Force. I'm all about Space Force. So we can agree on that for sure. Um, I definitely, Star Trek's going to be our main event. But I know that, that, and unfortunately, I didn't watch the show, but I know that, that you are have a lot to say about Stargate and or Stargate Atlantis. So please take it away. Folks, what I like about Stargate is that Stargate, the 10 years that it was on, Stargate has always, in every episode, Stargate has always had an emphasis. Maybe it's because of my military background, but, but um, they go to any great length to bring back everybody home, whatever, wherever they've gone, whatever they're doing, no one's left behind. Well, you so know, I, I don't mean to speak over you, but I, you know, I we shouldn't gloss over that. You were in the special forces. Yes, I was. I, you know, I didn't know it at the time. I, well, I knew I was special, but I didn't know what the heck it really was. They called it rapid deployment service when I was in. It was only six years ago that I found out that I was in Delta Force. Didn't ah, even know it. There you go. You could have made a they Chuck Norris movie. No, I was in the rear of the gear with with uh, the missiles. So okay. you know, I didn't do all the. All, I didn't. I never met Chuck Norris, and I never got to you know do any of the crazy stuff. But I knew all about it because I had a security clearance, and the guys that were first responders had a security clearance. Everybody else in our unit did not. So the only when they come back and they were all geeked up, the only people that they could talk to was us missile guys. So they came over and blabbed and just told us everything that they had done and when, where, why, and how. And I always wondered, man, what kind of unit am I in? I mean. We were in Cambodia before we were in Cambodia. We were still fighting Korea in 1969. What the heck? Or North Korea, you know? So, you know, and I never put two to two together. I was a 19-year-old kid. What would I know, you know? <laughs> um, it, it, it was hilarious. But I, one day I had the History Channel on. I'm in the other room. I think I had it on just to hear voices or something, you know? And, and I had it on. It said something about rapid deployment service. So I oh, wow, cool. That's I was in that. I'm going to see what that's about. So I sat down and they were cutting the commercial and it says the history of a Delta Force. And I said, oh, man, I must have misunderstood that one. There's no way I was Delta Force. So it came back from commercial and they recapped what they had gotten off on and they explained that, oh, my God, I was in Delta Force. No wonder I knew what I knew. Wow. No wonder the training was so doggone tough. <laughs> I didn't know. So, you know, I hate to say it, but I think it was for my own better. Had I known at an early age, I think I would have been as cocky as all heck and probably used that, you know, in in a wrong way. I, re- I really do think so. Well, you're probably think, right. But, you know, and, know thyself, right? Isn't that what the... Uh, I'll tell you what, man. I mean, I had a whole sense of awe and appreciation. You know, I I knew what I did was, you know, kind of hard hard unit. I mean, we were, we were getting more training than the Marine Corps and I got a lot of respect for the Marine Corps. Those guys really get the training. We got more than they did. And I couldn't understand what kind of heck, heck crazy unit that I get in myself, you know, myself get into. Cause you know, this is not what I signed up for, right. but, uh, but I had a whole new sense of pride and, and I mean, in a very positive way, I always admired that unit. I always wondered what kind of crackpots would join something like that is so dangerous, but then you realize it was you. <laughs> and yeah, you know, and it's like, wow, man, thank you, Lord. I mean, you know, I didn't know that about me. I mean, it was it was an honor to know that I was a part of that, even though I didn't do anything Hollywood worthy or anything. I was just being a part of it was was incredible for me. Well, you you did. Everyone plays their part, so thank you for your service. Sure. But back to Stargate. I didn't even know yes. you really get started on it. So yeah. <laughs> Ten years, this movie has always had the idea of 
of never leaving anyone behind. I think that's uh, a Jesus concept. He left the 99 to always pursue the one. And so this movie was the same thing. Most movies, it's the opposite. Star Trek. What is the Star Trek? Uh, the deeds of the many outweigh the needs of the one. So you should be the blind, mindless uh, drone to just go ahead and sacrifice your own life or others for the sake of the bigger picture of the state. No, thank you. I'll, I'll leave that one to you. You can do that. I, I'll do the opposite. The other thing is that all other movies about any, the, the nine sections, there's always a, a, like nine main deities or nine main important sections. Like even there's nine, nine sectors to the universe and um, Star, Star Trek is in charge of one of them. And they have this prime directive. They don't interfere with any a country until they uh, reach warp speed technology. Because obviously then they're going to know that they're in a bigger community, and so they're there to help tweak them into the peaceful way of, of uh, getting along with everybody and everything that's out there. Now, the only show that doesn't deify or glorify them, either as mistaken aliens or uh, gods or goddesses, is Star Trek, uh, SG-1. They spent 10 years tracking all these nine down and killing them because they're unredeemable. They're unnegotiable. They want to make slaves out of everyone until they die. And they don't care using and killing entire planets. They just, um, as the Bible says, that everything behind them is uh, just death and destruction and everything before them like Eden. They take everything that's good and just destroy everything to build up their own personal empire. So this show has spent 10 years tracking all of these things down and killing them. Um, I think that's totally awesomely incredible. Now the technology that's in that show, there's more technology there than I could ever imagine. Remember it was one, when I first understood about the secret space program and everything, and I just, it blew my mind. It was even hard for me to understand. And I deal with weird all the time. And this was too weird for me. So I'm saying, Lord, is this really real? And I watched an episode and there was my answer in the show. And I saw, come on, Lord, through a science fiction movie, you're going to talk to me through that? Really? And the next day, the theme of that, song, that science fiction was about uh, they were doing an experiment and using uh, capacitors. And somehow there was a surge of electricity that caused the capacitors to go stronger than what they would normally be able to go. And it sent them into an alternate universe. So, I saw that and I'm going, okay, yeah, that's not a coincidence maybe, but uh, Lord, I still need some more understanding on that. The next day I get about 50 different news things from different sources. And I got one that piqued my interest. It said that, that, uh, that the, uh, uh, the collider uh, at CERN had just ordered a huge amount of capacitors for their next time that they charge it up on September 23rd. I think it was 2019 or somewhere on 20, I think it was 2019 or somewhere on there. And, uh, and I'm going, whoa, no, that is not a coincidence there. Why would they want that? And they said they needed the capacitors because they're going to uh, be able to collide more this time than they ever had in the past three or four times that they had it fired up. So I'm going, well, you know, there's the technology. Here's an application. I guess I don't need a lightning bolt to hit me to say, okay, kid, you see, it's real. And it's, that's there. There's a lot of technology in Stargate that is disseminated, I think, for our understanding. Now, there's some parts that I think are kind of dangerous, like the Ori is almost, you know, that's kind of cutting too close to a, 
almost a mockery of uh, what we might be faced with very soon. But I mean, in any kind of major Hollywood production, you can't come out with everything without compromising, I'm sure. So in order to even have that show continue and exist, they probably have to compromise certain things. And so we're not going to get everything as pure, but at least there's a theme, there's a spirit behind SG-1 that is unlike any other science fiction program at all. It's almost like the anti-thesis of Star Trek. Let me see if I understand correctly. So in Star Trek, there were nine, let's just call them realms or, or yeah, empires exactly. or whatever. Yeah. And then they were, you know, and the purpose of Star Trek or the Federation was to try to make nicey-nice with everyone. Right. Um, and then what you were saying is that in, I, I guess in the Bible, but also in other major religions, there, there tends to be nine major gods, nine major deities, and that in Stargate 1, SG-1, they saw them not as a force for good, but as a source of, of evil. And I guess, in, yes. so in the Star Trek extrapolation, whoever the leader of these nine realms or universes or federations or kingdoms would be, would represent that. And in Stargate, they were trying to eliminate these nine. Is that, is that right, correct? Right, That's mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the big contrasting difference between them. Where Star Trek, they're making them fully compassionate human beings that are just um, wanting to make sure that new nations or new worlds that are coming into a larger community are going to be safe, protected under their leadership and guidance. You know, they're going to be uh, able to make a transition into a larger community, knowing who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And uh, and it made me realize when I found out the history of the whole, you know, uh, Star Trek Gene Roddenberry, his story, the backstory of everything, it, it leads right up to basically Gene Roddenberry um, was working on the, the end remains of um, uh, MK Ultra program that kind of dissolved uh, in almost an emergency state when they found out that the Russians were using psychics and mystics like Yuri, uh, Yuri Gelly, um, and others that that they were doing out-of-body travel and actually detecting and writing accurate details of some of the most uh, secret bases that we had in the United States. And they were getting accurate information from doing this. It was, it was um, actually actual, actual projection, but they called it remote viewing. So we had to hurry up and try to put our own program of remote viewing so we could counter that um, and get caught up to what the Russians were already doing. And in that, one of the guys was a captain working on the MKUltra program, became concerned that that this was maybe going too far in a a military application, and he wanted to have a backup system just in case it got too crazy where he could break out into his own um, in a more humanitarian effort, I guess is what you might say. Now, he was Indian. He came from, uh, from India. Um, dots, not arrows. And uh, and so he had a friend that he told everybody else about. He says, you know, I, this guy claims to come in contact regularly with aliens that are giving us all kinds of knowledge and an understanding of uh, technology and stuff. Maybe, maybe we ought to bring him in on this program too and maybe he can help us out. So that guy brought was brought over. They called it Operation Penguin uh, in the United States. And then he had a branch off of that that he did in his home. Well, this young movie um, 
promoter. Um, he his expertise was in movies. He had a lot of connections with Hollywood. He said, you know, this stuff is very important. We need to make a, a science fiction program so that we can help prepare everybody for the inevitable when when they come and announce themselves. We need to be ready for this, and we need to do it in a fictional, entertaining uh, thing. He says, you know, there's one program, they did one series, and they're thinking about canceling it because they don't know whether they can get enough material to carry it on. It's called Star Trek. He says, I know the guy that produced it. How about if I make an offer that we can supply them with all of their uh, future episodes, and we can give them a ton of episodes, uh, and it can maybe keep the thing alive. If he agrees to it, I think this would be the way that we can... Uh, make this work. So, if, you know, long story short, that's what happened. Uh, okay. Star Trek was a direct result of psychic connections to so-called uh, aliens that had been speaking to this guy from from uh, India and were getting programmed, getting ready for the cosmic Christ. I've long said that from the scriptures, there's an indication that there would be something coming from this heavens offering us peace and safety. It was going to be this cosmic Christ, not the Christ of the Bible, but a cosmic one, uh, bringing science and technology, and it would seduce mankind in that effort. I had no idea there would be Star Trek. That is my most favorite program. I've watched every episode from from the old 1960s ones right to Discovery, the last uh, of the newest episodes. I, I've watched all of them, and I've been a, a Trekkie most of my life. Um, to find out that that's the reality of the coming cosmic Christ, it broke my heart. It hurt. Well, Star Trek certainly has plenty of uh, time travel and portals and wormholes and uh, even the transporters and the, the mind meld is uh, yep. there as well. And also, it's also uh, characters with pointed ears and the, the blues and all of that fun stuff. Also, the reptiles as well. I, I forgot the name of the race, the gore or something. Um, going back to the nine. I may be wrong about this because I'm, I'm no expert on either, but I believe in Norse mythology, and I'm pretty sure this was done in the, you know, the, the Marvel movies as well. There's nine worlds. Uh, oh, that, yes. Uh, you see that system all the way through, every through everywhere. Oh, I think, wasn't it you that wrote me and asked me about uh, the seven-headed head, dragon? How, how does that fit in? Uh, I don't think that was me, but I'm very happy to, to find out. Okay, well, you know, it says there's seven, uh, there's a seven-headed dragon, great red dragon, up in the heavens making war, and it had ten crowns. So, okay, ten crowns doesn't fit on seven heads. No. So that means two of them have to wear double crowns. There's a reason why, because two, now the crowns are earthly rulers, um, and it's taken from Revelation 17, it says, for there are ten, uh, how does that go, it says, there are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as of yet, but are but give their power unto the beast, for they have one mind and one purpose. So this is a conspiracy by ten elite people. Now it's it's no big secret that after World War uh, Two, and the Nazis capitulated and unconditionally surrendered, you follow the money trail. Um, the American corporations and other you know uh, corporations and and science and technology. All came to America through Werner von Braun, or their money was funneled into the United Nations. This became the new place where they were going to reestablish a, a like a second generation of, of their agenda would continue on. Um, 
there's parallels between all of it. I even have in my book, I said, you know, that you're going to find out that the second and third generations after the Nazi paperclip scientists are probably going to get into right-wing politics or left, but they're going to be, um, you know, senators, um, governors in, in, in different areas of the country. And like my governor, my, my governess, yeah, my governor in Michigan, uh, Gretchen, I call her the witch of the Mitch. Um, Gretchen, my dear, is grandpa was a paperclip scientist. His name was Gerhard, uh, Ryan, uh, Gerhard Reisling. Um, yep, just like I said it would be, and that's what's happening. You'll find out, you do a little bit of research, you'll find out a lot of your senators and um, um, congressmen are relatives of Nazi paperclip scientists. Many of them are, on both sides, of you know, left and right. It doesn't matter. It's like uh, the World Wrestling Federation. They're the elitists are on both sides of the fence. You can't point to just one and blame it everything on one side. It's the swamp people run deep on both sides. Oh, well, now you're talking about wrestling. You're talking about my world. But um, <laughs> let me just about, and, and I don't remember this. I'm not sure that I'm right. But in Tolkien, wasn't, weren't there nine ring wraiths as well? You know, I think you're right. I, I wasn't, I, Tolkien was too much like fantasy and I like more, you know, science stuff. But um, I did watch some of the Tolkien things. And yes, there was a, uh, Nine, yeah, nine rings, yeah. Yeah, nine rings with nine ring rates, and then there was Sauron, so there's your ten. Um, yeah, so Tolkien, I mean, made no bones about it. I mean, maybe a little bit more subtle than C.S. Lewis. But, um, um, all right, anything else on Star Trek? Because I said that we promised that would be the main event. Um, well, I think the, mo most thing, the, the most compelling thing is it's, it really embeds compassion, human compassion, and care that somebody is going to come with science and technology and not mystical magic to show us a better way. And right now, science and technology has been our unconditional, unquestionable religion or science. We believe in, if, if you can produce it in science and it's, you know, and a scientist says whatever, we believe it. And when you can produce technology to back up the science, we totally hook, line, and sinker. We take it all completely, 100%. It happened on our highest level of government when the paperclip scientists come over here with their occult-based beliefs, but they could produce actual technology based on the occult beliefs. It caused us all to completely change our whole concept of God, of, um, uh, of everything. And that is the coming seduction and the event of the end-time deception is through technology and through extraterrestrials of a higher level that seem to come in peace to destroy many. And that's, that's what I think the biggest compelling and most dangerous part of Star Trek is, is because they're appealing to the human emotions, human natures, many times going, you know, outside of God's there's, you know, there's a, the scripture says there's a, a way that seems right unto a man, the other thereof are the ways of death. If you acknowledge him in all your ways, he will direct your steps. Well, we're not acknowledging him. We're looking for alternatives. Um, and I don't blame the majority of Christianity. has become a religion and not a relationship. And Christian religion is terrible. It's horrible. It misrepresents God, makes him a distant, powerless God that's not supernatural. He doesn't do much of anything, just kind of looks back and, and lets us kind of do our own thing. If we get out of step, he's either got a lightning bolt or a uh, 
baseball bat to whap you or zap you. And that's unfortunately too many people's ideas of what God is. And that's what religion has done. A relationship, we realize that, that God loves us like a heavenly father. And he wants to do what's best for us. But he gave us something that is the ultimate power, and that is our own free will. We can freely choose his love, or we can freely choose to reject it. But if it's being misrepresented by religion, it's very confusing. How do we find him? Well, he gives a guarantee. If we seek him with our whole hearts, we will find him. I don't care. There's no excuse. He's gonna. If we're really seeking the truth, we want the truth, and that's our main focus, we're going to get the truth. We're going to find out the name Jesus Christ. If we're wanting the truth, but I'm kind of interested in this and this and this too, so this is just part of the buffet. Probably not going to get the truth because you're not really single focused on it. Well, you know what? I I, I was going to bring in Babylon Five, but I'm not going to because you didn't. Uh, you know, you didn't rehash it though. I think that <laughs> we probably could have spent some time on it, but I think oh, that. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay because um, uh, I I think that that is really a good place to, to end the show. I mean, that was yeah. really great. Why don't you tell people where they can find you, tell them about your book, uh, things like that, anything you want to plug or promote? Yeah, go, go right ahead. Okay. Um, I was one of the first to be kicked off of uh, YouTube <laughs> for hate speech. Uh, so you can't get me on um, YouTube anymore. And unfortunately, I've been reduced down to uh, Facebook. It's where you can catch all my updates and uh, things that, that I'm doing as far as in ministry. So it's just under my name, Jim Wilhelmsen, W-I-L-H-E-L-M-S-E-N. Um, you can email me, uh, awitness41, it's A-W-I-T-N-E-S-S, the number 41 at AOL.com. Uh, those are two probably the best sources. I got echoesofenoch.com, which is E-C-H-O-E-S-O-F. Enoch.com. Uh, it's under construction right now, or reconstruction, um, a long time past due. So some of the links may not uh, be active right yet, and we're still in the process of redoing it. But uh, there you can get some of my um, articles. But most of the updates I do through Facebook, and if there's certain particular videos, I had 134 of them posted on YouTube at one time. I send them through <laughs> Skype. There's a, a PDF file free. Uh, if you want all of them, all I ask for is uh, $5 a month through PayPal just uh, for a year. And you get everything that I have, including a copy of my book signed and, and uh, uh, any new videos that I might uh, be coming up with. Uh, I just transfer them over. I think 10 at a time is about all it can take through Skype, but at least you can get those. Or I can send it to you snail mail um, on a zip uh, flash, flash drive. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. All right. Uh, wish you well. And, uh, you know, maybe when you, uh, watch a couple of those things that we talked about, or maybe when I do, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, reconvene again and talk about some of that stuff. But so very a link to that one. I'm really interested in reading that, that book. Oh, the descent? I will. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah, problem. Okay. I will. Great. Um, yeah. And I recommend it to the audience. It's, it's not an easy read, but it's, it's a worthwhile read. Um, but I will certainly, excuse me, do that. And Jim, thanks again for your okay, participation. You. All right, folks, I just disconnected with Jim. I hope that you found that show uh, interesting and thought-provoking. I sort of feel like I need to do a disclaimer. The, the views of Jim Wilhelmson are his own and not necessarily those of me or Garden of Doom. Um, I'm not a particularly religious person. 
I, I like to think I have an open mind and I have a certain spirituality to me, but it's my own and I probably couldn't define it uh, particularly well. And I'm not going to try now, but you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't adhere to all of the beliefs that, that he holds, but I really do enjoy hearing the biblical perspectives and tie-ins, um, especially from an evangelical, you know, especially American evangelical point of view to some pop culture and sci-fi. And, you know, maybe it'll make you look at things differently. That certainly makes me look at things differently. I never put gargoyles together with this until I sort of went into it. Um, I think unconsciously I, I felt Land of the Lost had a lot in there. I just couldn't quite put my finger on where it was all coming from. And I'm not sure that it's all biblical, but a lot of it certainly is. And and I don't know. I just think it's fun. I, these things interest me. So if anybody thought it was too much, you know, I get it. Uh, but hopefully you uh, got the, uh, the sci-fi and the enjoyment out of it. Um, you know, and either, you know, are you, in, you were interested in the rest just to hear from someone of faith who believes that stuff, who's served this country, um, you know, uh, you know, or you'll dismiss it or discount it or somewhere in between that that's up to you. I, I want the audience to decide. I am not a converter. I'm not proselytizing. I'm just trying to get entertaining content and things that cover the wide span of the Garden of Doom. And what covers more Garden of Doom than religion, possible apocalypse, uh, worldwide conspiracies on, on multiple levels, uh, and science fiction and fantasy. So I think I've definitely done my job this week. I thank you for tuning in and catch you next time in the Garden of Doom. Life is a journey. It can take you in many directions. Unexpected things can happen. And when they do, it's nice to know that someone's there for you. No matter where you're going or what you need. At Jovia, we're here to help. With convenient banking, great rates, and friendly service. Now that's something to smile about. Jovia Financial Credit Union. Bank on the bright side. After I got out of the Marine Corps, coming back home, it was just a mental breakdown for me. I was on the verge of giving up. That chapter, that season in my life was over. Now what? Who was I? That's what I kept asking myself. The pressure to have it all together, to heal, to 
quiet down the monsters inside. It was too much. I lost it. I had heard about the Wounded Warrior Project. I had seen the logo and that visual of a warrior carrying another warrior. The programs that the Wounded Warrior Project offers, it's not just the veteran themselves, it's, it's their whole family, it brings it all together. We have scars that we carry, and just because the scars are there doesn't mean that we're any less than what we were. Right now, I, I'm the best version that I ever have been of myself. I can embrace the brokenness. You wouldn't go into battle alone. You don't have to fight this alone. Visit woundedwarriorproject.org slash not alone.